Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today we are so excited to be joined by Assistant Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Mo Banerjee. Mo received her PhD from the Department of History at Harvard in 2018. Her dissertation, Questions of Faith, Christianity, Conversion, and the Ideological Origins of Political Theology in Colonial India, 1813-1907, examines Christian evangelism in Bengal using archival evidence from sources such as vernacular Bengali broadsheets, pamphlets, court cases, probates, and newspapers at multiple archives in the UK, India, and Bangladesh. Her book project is an intellectual and political history of the creation of the Indian political self, a self that emerged through an often oppositional relationship with evangelical Christianity and the apologetic debates arising out of such engagements. Her dissertation received the Harold K. Gross Award, which is granted annually by the Faculty of the History Department at Harvard, to the graduate student whose dissertation, quote, gave greatest promise of a distinguished career of historical research. Mo's research interests include the religion and politics in India, the history of gender, hunger and food politics, the history of borders, refugees, and immigration during the first wave of decolonization in South Asia, and the history of foreign relations and diplomacy in the broader Indian Ocean arena. Mo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sonia. I'm very excited to be here. Well, we are so excited to speak with you. And one of the questions that I like to ask guests as they join me is how they embarked on this amazing career and choice in scholarship. And also many of my guests happen to be basically immigrants from India or from our diaspora, the South Asian diaspora. And so I also like to find out what brought you here to the United States and the state of Wisconsin, of all places? So if you wouldn't mind answering those for me, that would be so appreciated. That's a very, you know, it's not quite a straight path that I took, and it's not a straight line that's brought me here to Wisconsin-Madison. To begin with, I was always interested in history, but I think more from the point of view of entertainment than anything else. My grandmother and my grandfather, my maternal grandmother and grandfather, both, you know, had graduate degrees in history, though one of them was a high school teacher and the other was a lawyer. My father is a civil engineer, but and he loved history and my mother is a botanist and she loved history. I say all of this just to, you know, kind of bring into 
focus that history takes up so much of our lives, of the lives of ordinary people, because that is where we seek entertainment, that is where we seek knowledge. It is one of the ways to keep our own heritage alive. And I think like any ordinary child, I grew up in a household where, you know, storytelling took the forms of historical narratives. And I think that is where that interest in history started. Of course, like any other South Asian child, I was expected perhaps to grow up and become a doctor or an engineer, but that path never quite appealed to me. So essentially, you know, for my undergraduate degree, I studied English literature, which I loved. And then when I finished with my undergraduate, I decided I would do a PhD and that PhD would be on the history of Bible translations. Now that has a history that's connected to where I come from. I come from a very small town in the western part of the Indian state of West Bengal. And this used to be known as the jungle mahals in the colonial era. Lots and lots of indigenous populations, the Adivasis or tribal populations, as they are known in, in India, and a lot of missionary activity. So, for example, there were the Baptists there who were working. There was a German Lutheran church which was working there. Essentially, there is a long history of Christianity. I grew up with friends who were Christian. I went to a missionary school, the Assembly of God Church School. And again, the Bible was a part of growing up. I was born and raised a Hindu, but the Bible was there equally from the ages of two and a half to the age of like 17 when I, when I graduated uh, high school. And I really wanted to know the history of the Bible and the history of Christianity in India, which is what drove me towards, you know, my PhD topic. And Bible translations in India have also a very long history. And I wanted to look at the Bengali Bible, Bengali being my mother tongue, which brought me to a group of missionaries known as the Serampur or Baptist missionaries of Serampur, who essentially, you know, came to India in 1796 and set up what was one of the largest translation projects anywhere in the world. The idea of this group of men, three men, William Word, William Carey, and Joshua Marshman, was to translate the Bible in about 40 Indian languages, and I was fascinated by this project. However, Bible translation is a very, very, you know, specialized field. It requires a lot of linguistic study and it can be, you know, you know, an analyzing every word and seeing how it fit into a translation often changes the meaning of the Bible in the language into which it is being translated, right? And I found that this was not something that was sustaining my interest. I was far more interested in the men who were doing this and the people around them who were, you know, helping them with it, the way they approached, you know, conversion in the Indian context. That is where my PhD topic sort of kind of solidified. What brought me to the US? I wanted to do a PhD. And for some reason, my PhD in India didn't work out under very tragic circumstances. But essentially, at that point, I just wanted to, you know, do more work on this. And I applied to a number of schools. I wrote to a number of scholars in the U.S. Two people who answered very, very kindly were David Armitage at Harvard, who, you know, told me to write to his colleague, Shugato Bose, who was a Guardian professor at Harvard and taught Indian history, South Asian history. And I wrote to Shugato and he was, you know, very kind and told me to come and meet him. And I met him in 2010 during summer. I think roughly around July, 
And that kind of changed my life. He was very encouraging. He told me to apply to Harvard. And in 2011, I got into the PhD program at Harvard. And that was the first time I remember me being anywhere outside my country. I came to visit Harvard in March of 2011. I had absolutely no idea of the freezing temperatures in Boston. Came with, you know, a sweatshirt and 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 that was it. And I remember my professors were being horrified. They were like, you are going to die of the cold <laughs> before you can go back home. That should tell you, you know, how clueless I was about all of this. But I came back, you know, in August, joined the program. It was overall a very positive experience for me. And I must say my dissertation committee, David Armitage was on that committee. Shugata Bose was my advisor, Emma Rothschild, Sunil Amrit, who was one of the recipients of the MacArthur Grant, and then Aisha Jalal, who is at Tufts, one of the most renowned historians of South Asia and of Pakistan, was my examiner. She was also, you know, MacArthur Grant recipient. So, you know, the two South Asian historians of modern India who have received MacArthur grants were both on my committee, which made it very, very intimidating. And my advisor is, again, along with Aisha, one of the most well-known historians of South Asia. So I had a lot of intellectual nurturing, which has, I think, in many ways, strengthened me as a scholar and guided my research interests. So that was that story. In 2018, I got a job at Clemson, South Carolina, and I was there for a year, again, a very positive experience. And then when the Wisconsin job came up at UW-Madison, you know, most people don't know, but the largest scholarly conference, academic conference on South Asia happens in Madison every wow. year annually. It has been happening for the last 50 years. This is one of the most well-known centers for the study of South Asia and one of the oldest centers for the study of South Asia. It was a dream job. I had to apply. And I got the job. So, you know, that kind of tracks my peripatetic life, if you will, from a very small town in West Bengal, from there to, you know, Harvard, and from Harvard to Clemson, and from Clemson to Madison. So it's been quite a journey. It's been quite a journey. Wow, what an inspiring, and I certainly never expected that narrative. That is just phenomenal. Yeah, from West Bengal to now Madison, Wisconsin. And what I really like is a couple of things that you mentioned really resonate with me. One is being part of a team that is, you know, helping missionaries to translate biblical script. It's just absolutely phenomenal. And then in addition to that, I was an English major. You are absolutely correct that you understood that having acute knowledge of the Bible is so fundamental, right, to, yes. to studying. And and it's interesting because part of our diaspora, we're often raised as Hindus or perhaps not from the Judeo-Christian background. And so it, we definitely miss out on a lot of the nuances, whether historical or, or throughout English literature, if we don't have that knowledge base. So I that resonates with me very strongly. And then thirdly, it leads me into my first question, which pertains to the history of India and how intrinsic missionary activities were to various parts of India. And, you know, I'm just so excited to begin this discussion with you 
such an amazing, renowned scholar in this area. And um, you also enlightened me about Madison and Wisconsin's role in the history of South Asia. Had no idea, would never imagine that that was the case, but so fascinating. And, you know, the way we start, I wanted to start out this discussion is to take us all the way back to understand how British colonialism and the British Raj came to be in power in India for such an immense period of time. Mm -hmm. And so in researching for this, I came to understand that around the 18th century, a number of significant events took place in the world. And one such event was the Industrial Revolution, which took place in England and gradually spread to other countries across Europe. And one sea route in particular that really um, was a very significant point in history was when the Portuguese seafarer known as Vasco da Gama in 1498 traveled to India. And as a result, the English, French, Portuguese, and Dutch started to come to India for trade. And they also started to spread missionary activities in India. So I wanted to clarify with you, is that a correct chain of events? And any other comments you have about this pivotal moment in history? I think the history of Christianity in India is the you know is as old as the history of Christianity itself. So there is an apocryphal story that Thomas the Doubter, you know, the disciple of Jesus, who would not believe that he had resurrected and wanted to see the wounds, the stigmata on his palms. He essentially, apparently, legend tells us, takes a boat from somewhere near present-day Syria and lands upon the western coast of India in 52 AD. So that's within 20 years of the, you know, of whatever, the legend of the passing of, of Jesus himself or the resurrection of Jesus himself. And he comes and lands in somewhere near what is present-day Kerala and converts a very large group of people who are known to this day as the Syrian Christians or the Nazarene Christians. And, you know, you know about Aranthati Roy, for example, you know, the great writer, God of Small Things. The God of Small Things is essentially based on the small Syrian Christian community and their place in the caste hierarchy of India. Aranthati Roy's mother was a Syrian Christian. So essentially, again, the history of Christianity in India, as I keep telling, you know, people, is as old as Christianity anywhere in the world is. Amazing. The story, however, kind of, you know, gains steam from the point of time that you are referring to. So, yes, in 1498, Vasco da Gama, the Portuguese adventurer, you know, finds a path through the Cape of Good Hope around South Africa, comes to, again, the western part of India. And he is ostensibly coming to India, you know, to stop, in a sense, uh, you know, uh, the domination of Arab traders in the Indian Ocean region and essentially find an inroad into the spice trade, which Indian spices have dominated world trade since Roman times. Indian pepper, for example, Talichari pepper, very, very famous black pepper, right? is something that is prized all over in all over Europe. And that is what Vasco da Gama ostensibly sets out to do. However, he also brings with him a group of 18 missionaries. 
with the hope that you know there would be conversion that would that would happen in in, in India and as soon as the missionaries land they are astounded to find that there is already some version of christianity it is again the syrian christians that i'm talking about and they are really really taken aback it turns into something of a bloody contest between local powers in india and vasco da gama essentially the arab population and and the hindu populations and the christian traders and missionaries and it is quite a bloody struggle however the portuguese managed to extend what is known as a padroado all over the indian ocean region sanjay subramaniam legendary historian of early modern south asia has written extensively about this and what happens is a slow spread of catholicism all over the western coast and in southern india the one thing to remember here of course is in most cases the catholicism that is spreading is jesuit catholicism and to catholicism in and of itself admits a lot of syncretism it finds a way to accommodate indian religious practices including the you know incorporation of the caste system into catholic christianity so even today if you go to a catholic church in south india for example you will find that the church seats the church benches the pews are organized according to caste meaning at least until the late 19th century it would be brahmin communities who had converted into christianity who would be admitted into the first few you know lines of the pew in the church then the kshatriyas then the vaishyas and you know those who came from untouchable castes would either stand at the very back of the church or would be outside the church itself so catholicism essentially incorporates a lot of the practices of hinduism and islam within it the other thing to of course remember the gutenberg bible for example one of the you know few extant copies of the gutenberg bible the first printed bible is in goa which was a portuguese stronghold and you know is very strongly a kind of syncretic mixture of catholic portuguese culture and indian cultures right so essentially you know you're perfectly correct in saying that it's from 1498 onwards that there is this you know kind of increasing spread and knowledge of christianity in india for example one of the jesuit catholic missionaries who come into india uh Francis Xavier writes something called the Krishna Puran a puran as you very well know is is a text a sacred indian text which is a compilation of legends of hindu gods and goddesses he writes the krishna puran essentially making or sort of reshaping christ as one of these gods and goddesses perhaps the most important god within the indian pantheon so on one hand there is a lot of christian missionary activity on the other hand there is a very very interesting admixture of cultures and religious precepts that is continuously taking place and there is a third aspect to it which is that a lot of the groups that are you know kind of converting they are converting with their entire communities fishermen groups for example on the coasts of india want some protection both from portuguese pirates and from you know islam you know, from the hindu and islamic rulers in the in the coast and as a result they decide that if we become christian you know at least we are not going to be harried by the portuguese pirates right so there are multiple very very complex motivations for conversion in india as well 
And it's an incredibly interesting, incredibly intriguing, at times bloody, but mostly peaceful kind of spread of Christianity within India. The Protestant missionaries in India start coming in as soon as the East India companies start coming in. So, for example, the English East India Company, which would go on to rule India from 1757, essentially, you know, gets a farman or, a, 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 you know, permission to trade in India from the Mughal Emperor Jahangir. And this is very, very early in the 17th century. So do the French East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, the Danish also sort of trade in India for a while. And you have this composite culture then and a kind of increasing awareness that essentially, you know, goes hand in hand with the spread of Christianity in India. That is extremely illuminating. I had no idea about Catholicism and how it actually incorporated some of the caste system. Absolutely new information for me and and so fascinating and interesting because I really thought that it eradicated all of that. And, and then the question I have for you is I would presume that generations of, of those Indians now to this day still practice Catholicism and various forms of Christianity. Is that indeed the case? Catholicism, Protestantism... Absolutely. Both, both of those are practiced across Southeast Asia, concentrated in the southern part of India and now in the northeastern part of India. In southern India, it's still very much to a large extent Catholicism, though there are Protestant groups also. And as I said, there is a very strong community of Syrian Christians, a Nazarene Orthodox Christians, as, as I said, you know, they are the oldest group. In the northeast of India, it's very much, again, also an admixture of Protestantism and Catholicism, but there Protestant Christianity is practiced a little bit more. If you look at the demographic statistics, somewhere around 1.5, 1.7% of total Indian population is practicing Christian. That doesn't sound like much, but if you think of the fact that India has more than 1.3 billion people, that shapes up to a very large number of, of Indian citizens who essentially do practice Christianity and have continued to do so for many hundreds of years. Absolutely. No, there's no doubt about it. And I think it will be very enlightening for a lot of the Western listeners or other folks from our diaspora that may not be aware of some of those historical facts. And I, I kind of wanted to move into what some of Britain's goals were embarking upon the colonization of India for a lot of socioeconomic and economic reasons. But one of their goals was to transform India into a consumer of British goods. And this is fascinating to me. So as a result, textile, metalwork, glass, and paper industries were soon out of work in India. And the Indian handicrafts lost both their domestic as well as foreign market. And Indian goods could not compete with the British factory-made product, which were largely machine-made. And so I just want to learn more about that. So from an exporter, India became an importer of these goods. And the other question I had along those lines is, what are the effects of that that we see today? Was there a sort of a repression of these industries from forming across India, considering we just gained independence in 1947. Is this still an area of 
development that's happening since we were repressed from pursuing that for a period of time? This is a very, very interesting question. So remember, it's Indian cotton and Indian spices which bring, you know, all of all of this attention trade-wise from Europe to India. And again, the East India Company, and I'm talking about the English East India Company now, essentially comes to India and begins a trade both in spices and in cotton, but largely focusing on cotton. So around 1710, when the last great Mughal emperor Aurangzeb dies, India's gross domestic product, GDP, is about 23% of the world's gross domestic product. It's an extremely rich country. Its trade networks are spread across the world. It's trading with every significant European power at this point of time. Within India itself, after the death of Aurangzeb, there is a lot of decentralization and regional powers start becoming more and more important, which means there is a lot of movement of migrant labor. There is a lot of movement of goods and services across the country. And essentially, you know, there used to be this older historical idea that after Aurangzeb's death, there is a moment of decline and, you know, darkness and into which the British bring enlightenment. You will not be surprised to know that it is usually older British historians who, you know, propagated this idea. But that is not so. India was still very, very flourishing, very rich. And Bengal, which is where the Dhakai muslin the muslin cloth, the most important, most well-known, you know, cotton cloth that is traded all over the world is being produced, is the richest province in India. So it's the richest province of one of the richest countries of the world. And the British essentially decide that there are two reasons as to why an annexation taking over might work better. One is to safeguard their own interests. Bengal at this point is governed by independent rulers known as the Nawabs of Bengal. And they understand very, very quickly that the East India Company is one, you know, bringing up its own standing army. Two is cheating the Nawab of taxes which might be paid. Three, that private traders who, you know, British East India Company's servants, people who work for the British East India Company are also working as private traders. And again, there is that issue of how much is owed to the Nawab in forms of taxes and tributes and goods, none of which is actually reaching the Nawab. So the young Nawab who comes to power in 1756, Siraj ud very headstrong, essentially decides that he has to break, you know, this, this kind of you know, bipolar kind of shift of power between the British East India Company and his own centre in Murshidabad. And he launches an attack on the on the British. And the British essentially understand during this attack that they have to do away with this constant irritation from regional leaders and figure out a way in which it is their, you know, benefit, it is their, uh, you know, profit, which is going to be of paramount interest. So there is a battle known as the Battle of Plassey in 1757, where Robert Clive, a British general, essentially through conspiracy, manages to weaken Siraj Uttala's army. One third of the army refuses to fight on the day of the battle. 
essentially defeats this young, you know, ruler and takes over Bengal and takes over the duties by 1764 of tax collection of the Diwani. Now they have in their hand the entire, you know, a treasury of Bengal. Later on in the 18th century, when Clive would be impeached in the British Parliament for his corrupt practices, he would essentially go on to say, well, I walked through the treasury of Murshidabad of Bengal and I gave myself only 23 million sterling pounds. And I thought that was a very small sum. So you can imagine the level of plunder which, you know, was undertaken when the last independent rulers of Bengal fell. What did this grasp of the richest treasury in the richest province of of one of the richest countries in the world do for the British? They stopped relying on silver coming in from the new world. Remember, money is usually silver or gold-based, silver largely. A lot of that silver is being funneled from mines in the new world, including in Mexico. By the 1770s, this silver has started drying up. The mines are not producing as much. And it is in you know, favor of the European powers to stop this outward flow of specie or gold and silver from their own treasuries and to find a market where they can essentially be self-sufficient. So gaining the Bengal province is in a way a godsend because now they have this money. They can extract that money from the Indian people. They can use it for their own trade. And then, you know, expenses of the British government, the East India Company has by this point started working as a state in and of itself, a government power in and of itself, even though it is only a joint stocks trading company, essentially means that they are more or less self-sufficient. So what else are they trading other than cotton? They are also trading in indigo, the dye, which only in the 19th century would become something that could be mass produced, commercially produced, chemically produced. Before that, it came from a plant. And if you look at any portrait or, you know, if you look at any film about Jane Austen, or if you look at any of the porcelain, for example, you know, Wentworth porcelain, for example, or Edgeworth porcelain that is coming out from Europe, you will find a particular kind of very light, airy cotton that everyone is wearing. It is usually in some shade of blue. So, for example, the great portrait of um, Napoleon by Delacroix, for example, the deep blue coat that he is wearing, that's coming from indigo that's produced in India, right? Essentially, Indian cotton, Indian indigo, so to some extent, Kashmiri shawls, the word paisley comes from, you know, particular ways in which Kashmiri shawls are embroidered, is all the, all the rage in Europe. What else? The East India Company, as my advisor was very fond of saying, turns into the greatest drug dealing cartel in the world by the middle of the 19th century. It produces opium in India, and then it shifts this opium, as we know very, very famously, into China in order to get Chinese tea. And that Chinese tea, of course, is exported all over the world. So, for example, the Boston Tea Party, what kind of tea is being dropped into the harbor in Boston? It's Indian tea. It's Chinese wow. tea brought through India, right? So essentially, you know, there are these very, very complex motivations commercially that are driving imperialism within within India. By the 1800s, the first decade of the 1800s, the Industrial Revolution is on full stream in Britain. Suddenly, you know, they find that they have this industrial capability. Now they need raw materials. 
raw materials, for example, cotton, and they find out that it is much easier to actually get cotton from the Indian heartland, send it to these mills in Manchester, Lancashire, produce mass-produced cotton goods, send them to India, and then sell them. And as you know, raw materials will always cost much less than, than finished goods. So India then slowly turns into this huge captive market. And Indian cotton, muslin cotton, which is handwoven, requires a lot of man hours, starts actually losing its market. People will always buy something that is cheaper and hardier. And that is what machine-produced cotton is. There are apocryphal stories that Dhaka, the current capital of Bangladesh, is where Dhaka muslin, that is where it gets its name, is produced. Dhaka sees the British government come in and chop off the thumbs of the weavers. This is not, I haven't found, you know, any solid historical, you know, evidence that this happened. But this is a very well-known legend. And it could both be actually literal and metaphorical in that if you cut off someone's thumb, they are no longer able to actually weave on a loom, meaning the cotton industry is completely smashed, right? Indigo plantations crop up everywhere in Bengal and in what is present-day Bihar. And what does indigo as a cash crop do? Indigo is one of the crops which soaks up the nutrients from the soil and leaves it barren. Meaning if you are forcing Indian peasants to actually bring up indigo on their lands, what you're also doing is basically, you know, impoverishing those lands. No food can be grown there later on, right? It also becomes increasingly, you know, interestingly, uh, indigo also starts losing its market because it now can be chemically produced in a lab by the 18th, by the 19th century, and essentially it becomes a fruitless thing. Indian lab, Indian laborers, Indian wage workers, Indian farmers get bound up in this ruinous kind of credit debt cycle because there is no way in which they can make a profit out of uh, selling indigo. And in this indigo plantations that torture the rack and rent of, of the farmers, it essentially becomes, again, another legend of British imperial cruelty. Why does the British Railways come up by 1853? It is not for the benefit of Indians. It is essentially to carry raw goods, raw materials to the port cities of Calcutta and Mumbai, Bombay and Madras, to send it out all over the world and to sp spread finished goods that are coming from Europe all over India. It is for the easy deployment of British civil servants and British soldiers, so control can be maintained. Shareholders in the Indian railways are promised about a 6% annual return, meaning this is not, again, this is a commercial venture. This is something that goes into, pours back into England in terms of, you know, profits that are being harvested. So, for example, India's MP Sashi Tharoor has this fantastic kind of speech. If you search for it on YouTube, he's at the Oxford Union talking about, talking about you know, this, this idea that the British brought civilization to India. And first and foremost, people will always talk about, oh, but we brought you the railways. And Sashi Tharoor just goes on to smash that idea into smithereens. This is a very good speaker, right? Essentially, what else do the railways do? Iftikhar Iqbal, who is a historian of Bangladesh, actually traces back the huge epidemics that sweep over the Indian countrysides 
cholera, malaria, both are waterborne diseases, right? Dengue, waterborne disease. Why are there so many waterborne diseases that are suddenly cropping up in these rural hinterlands? It's because when you build the raised bunds, B-U-N-D-S, as they used to be called, to lay the tracks of railways, you are obstructing the path of natural drainage of water. So water starts building up, marshes and swamps artificially are created, and suddenly you have region after region after region devastated with this man-made epidemics. Cholera epidemics, the five great cholera epidemics in the world that have happened have all originated from India in the 19th century. And again, as a result of building up of these kinds of artificial structures for the movement of railways. There is one book, you know, I would like to refer your readers to. It's by Mike Davis. It's called Late Victorian Holocausts. And he essentially talks about a modern day production of poverty in India as a result of British economic and political policies. The country that at 1757 was, you know, providing 23% of the world's GDP, by the time we have independence 200 years later, is perhaps one of the most abjectly poor countries in the world with less than 5% literacy rate. And that is manufactured within 200 years. Between 1757 and 1947, the daily income, you know, the per capita income of Indians do not rise by a cent. 200 years. There is an enclosure of the common land. There is restriction on rivers. There is kind of, you know, impoverishment of farmers and peasants in such a way that we suddenly have this huge underclass of completely desolate, poverty-stricken, malnourished people. Between 1857 and 1900, more than 19 million Indians die in famines, which is about the size of the total population of Great Britain. Uh. Two huge famines bookend British colonialism in India. One is in 1770-71 in Bengal, in which about one third of the population of Bengal perishes. The other is in 1941-42, in which anywhere between three to five million people perish again in Bengal. Both are man-made famines. So this entire idea that there was some sort of enlightening, you know, civilizational force behind Indian, you know, colonization is a complete lie. And it is becoming important to discuss these questions even now, because post-Brexit, for example, there is this kind of resurgence of Raj nostalgia. The East India Company used to be known as, you know, the Company Raj. And then from 1857, it used to be known as the Crown Raj, right? So the Raj nostalgia, that there was some sort of beneficial impetus behind British colonialism is resurgent in Britain. And I have to say, it's absolutely one of the most horrific things to kind of observe as a historian, because there is this impetus towards rewriting history and kind of erasing national memory. And it's just inconceivable. No, I'm glad that you're mentioning that. There's no question about that. And I've seen pictures, images from that horrible period in history where the loss of life is just unimaginable. You said it's the entire country of Britain. I mean, it's mind boggling. And they're just horrible, horrible pictures you'll never forget if you see them, of the famine and its effects. And I have to say, I have a new connection now to 
the Boston Tea Party, because that is absolutely amazing that you bring up the point that that tea, famously, is from India. And how ironic that on the heels of, of the United States seeking independence, of course, many, many years later, in 1947, India would again do the same thing against none other than the British. And also bringing up Napoleon's famous portrait, of course, you can forget that beautiful blue coat. And recognizing that connection again to India is just so fascinating for me, among all the other items that you've discussed thus far, just so incredibly illuminating. And there's so much detail that, I mean, we only have so much time in this podcast. And I have to say, I must have you back again, (laughs) but to to continue through this, because the next question that I want to get into is an interesting phenomenon, which details the rise of the new middle class. And with the rise of the British commercial interest, new opportunities opened, and I want to caveat this, to a small section of the Indian mm. people. And they acted as agents and intermediaries of the British traders and, and made a huge fortune. And the new landed aristocracy, which came into being after the introduction of permanent settlement, which you sort of referenced also formed a part of this new class. And so I want to understand a bit more about this because in some sense, these Indians, indigenous people, had to embrace an English education and obviously become very, very adept at not only English, but British customs. And and yet it's a small group. So if you could speak to me more about this. Again, fascinating question. Thank you. And again, there is an American connection to this. Okay. When Napoleon comes to power in France, you know, the Napoleonic Wars start, one of the things that happens is a blockade on the passage of any kind of ship from Europe to India for the the purposes of trade. Who comes to the rescue? It's American trading ships. And legendarily, it's, you know, one of the first consulates that the new independent nation of of the United States of America sets up anywhere in the world is in Kolkata, in Calcutta. And George Washington sends a man called Benjamin Joy to set up that consulate, essentially to make sure that American ships, which are trading with India, have some sort of diplomatic embassy support while they're carrying out this trade. So Calcutta sees one of the first, uh, you know, consulates, American consulates anywhere in the world. And ships are trading from Boston, from Philadelphia, directly with Calcutta. This group of people that you talk about, you know, the intermediaries, this, this newly rising middle class, many of them also essentially are involved in working as interpreters, as intermediaries, both with the British and with the Americans. And the first Indian millionaire is a man called Ramdulal Sharkar, who carries out a huge trade with the Americans. He has one of the first portraits of George Washington in his ancestral home. It is gifted to him by the American traders, including the Norton family, who are trading with him. And, you know, if you went to the Peabody Museum in Massachusetts, you would find a lot of the, you know, souvenirs from the East that from from Calcutta that these American traders are bringing back. 
this story continues, you know, this kind of trading interests feeding directly into the creation of a middle class elite in India. And it's very, very apparent in trade cities. So, for example, in Calcutta, which is already, you know, gaining importance as a second city of the British Empire, it is a capital city for the British in India, in, in their Indian Empire as well. It is happening in Bombay which used to be a Portuguese city and then turns into, you know, is, is, is given over to, to the British during the 17th century as a result of a marriage that takes place between the British king and a Portuguese princess. And again, there, you know, the connection is between this small minority group called the Parsis. So, for example, the Tata multinational company that is, a, you know, headed by a Parsi family, uh, Zoroastrians who had at some point migrated from Iran into India. Right. And in Madras as well, presently Chennai as well. It is this trade connections. It is this kind of close relationship with the imperial powers that brings to the fore a particular group of Indians who also start essentially figuring out where they stand in this hierarchy. So while they are doing a lot of things with the British, including trade and, you know, diplomatic relationships, at the same time, they start redefining what their own practices of religion might look like. And in this, they come, you know, into constant clashes with, you know, missionaries who want to spread the word of God, who want to have conversion practices, conversion drives happening in all of these sports cities. So again, 1813-13 is when the charter of the East India Company to trade in India is renewed. And for the very first time, both free trade is allowed, meaning the monopoly of the East India Company is taken away. And two, missionaries are allowed to preach all over these regions freely, which they were not before 1813. So between 1757 and 1813, if you were to take a you know ship from England to India, and if you put down in the ship's register that your occupation was evangelism or being a missionary, you would not be allowed to get down in Calcutta. You would have to go upriver and find one of the other French or Danish or Dutch colonies to embark. Okay, But what I'm trying to say here is there is this group which is beginning to have a new say in Indian social and political and religious life. One, because they have the financial power to do it. This is an age of Indian entrepreneurs. Two, because they have in order to, you know, they have to, in order to have that preeminence in their own societies, perform a particular kind of orthodox, you know, belief in rituals and rites of their own religions. And three, because even with all of the enlightenment that is very slowly coming into India, there is a new class of people that the British need. So, for example, for the entire population of India of about 33 million, there are only about 250,000 British officials. Very, the, the ratio is completely unbalanced, as, as you can imagine. They have a very strong standing army. The British army very soon becomes one of the largest armies in the world. But officials, civilians, diplomats, they are very small in number. So they need this underclass of Indians who can act as intermediaries. And by 1835, Thomas Babington Macaulay says the only way to do this is to give, you know, teach them English modes and manners. So you have people who have brown skin, but are actually English at heart. And Macaulay's minute becomes this turning point for this 
middle class, aspirationally middle class, who then start filling up the middle management ranks of British bureaucracy. That in and of itself has a very, very strong effect, a kind of reformative effect on Indian society as a whole. And the very first Indian reform movement, so for example, you know, sati, the practice of burning of Indian widows on their husbands' funeral pyres, which is banned in 1829, is largely coming as a result of, you know, the activism of Indians who prevail upon the British government and say, listen, this is a barbaric practice. This is something that the Enlightenment does not admit of, so put an end to it legally. And people like Raja Ram Mohan Roy are essentially asking for such reforms, which is not to say that all Indians from the middle class actually believed in this. So remember Lord Clive, the one who defeated the last independent ruler, Nawab of Bengal. He is very, very closely tied to his interpreter, a man called Nabokrishna Deb, who also gains a stupendous riches from the ransack of the of the treasury, the Mushidabad treasury, and is given the title of Raja or King. His grandson, Radhakantodeb, goes against Ram Mohan Roy and says, no, the British cannot actually interfere in our modes and morals. Sati is fine, let Sati continue. But thankfully, it's Ram Mohan Roy's faction which gains the upper hand. So, Commercial profiteering feeds into a creation of a particular kind of intermediary group, irrespective of their economic worth, who call themselves the middle, middle class. And that feeds into particular ways of thinking about practicing indigenous Indian religions. That would have another change in 1857 after the Great Rebellion, the Great Mutiny. But it is during this period, it's commerce which is feeding into particular ideas of social, political, cultural reform, and is being spearheaded by this group of men who, you know, Indian men, who essentially have figured out that they can work as intermediaries between the British and their own countrymen. Well, that's an incredibly insightful way to frame things, because to your point, the growing middle class, it sounds like in some respect, they were responsible for ushering in this renaissance of ideas and in some respect, this reformation movement. And yes, they, the British troop and the diplomats were far outnumbered by the indigenous people and Indians. So it was in their best interest to ensure that intermediaries were indeed in existence in the country. That makes absolute sense. And again, the U.S. connection is so incredibly fascinating, as is the emergence of Tata. I've often wondered if you're not familiar with Tata, um, those that go to India, I mean, it's ubiquitous. <laughs> and it's just a true definition of a conglomerate. But this didn't just happen overnight, to your point. And so the roots of that in the history of India are so compelling and fascinating to me. And it makes so much sense now. And, you know, I cannot believe we're coming to the end of our time here, but I think as we look to begin another podcast, I think this Renaissance and the Reformation movement are a great place for us to start. And any closing comments that you have, it's really given so much for myself and listeners to think about here. And it's very disturbing. I mean, as you look at this, one cannot say that India came out better for all of this. In fact, the loss of life is just staggering and shameful 
And I'm glad that you're bringing up the point that any resurgence or um, sort of nostalgia for this should be immediately (laughs) examined very closely. But yeah, any other closing comments that you might have? Well, I mean, lots to say, but just two things. One, if you want to read more about the Tata, my friend and colleague, Mircea Rayanu, just has a book on the Tata, which has come out from Harvard University Press. And I would strongly encourage anyone who wants to know more about Indian entrepreneurs, Indian indigenous entrepreneurs, for example, to go and read that book. I just also want to kind of, you know, in lieu of talking about, you know, the close American and Indian connections, once a civil war happens in the United States, cotton production in the South is hampered for almost three or four years. It is during this period that Indian cotton suddenly has a resurgence. Harvard professor Sven Beckert wrote a book called The Empire of Cotton, where he very clearly makes a connection that as soon as you know cotton production in the American South stops, cotton production booms in the Indian West. And this cotton starts going all over the world, feeding into indigenous entrepreneurs, uh, in, into the resources of Indian uh, Indian entrepreneurs. Once you know cotton production resumes, there's a sudden bust in the market, which leads into total and complete impoverishment of an entire generation of Indian farmers in the Indian West. And as I said, Mike Davis and his late Victorian Holocausts also kind of traces the aftermath of that cotton bust and boom. So already India is tied very, very closely to that cycle of global trade in a way that leaves it very, very vulnerable to British commercial profiteering purposes. And the impoverishment of India is very closely tied to this to this worldwide order. And the other thing that I just very quickly want to mention, and then, you know, hopefully we'll have another, another, you know, way to another, you know, opportunity to talk about this. The Renaissance is a name that Indian entrepreneurs, Indian, you know, middle class, Indian thinkers, intellectuals give very, very self-consciously to themselves. They are very clearly seeing a new rise in consciousness, a new reformist attitude that is taking, you know, taking place. And I hope we get a chance to talk about the gendered aspect of this reform movements, because in most cases, these reforms center around the body of the Indian woman. So for example, Sati is about, you know, the treatment of Indian women, and in some ways, the murder of Indian women as they, as they, you know, as they are burnt alive on their husband's pyres. The second aspect of all of this, of course, is the abolishment of slavery, first in Britain in 1834 and then in 1865-66 in, in, in the U.S., essentially means someone has to supply the place, you know, for all the slave labor, right? And that brings up a new wave known as the, you know, that Hugh Tinker, the British historian, called the second system of slavery. So we now have Indian indentured labor mm-hmm. and huge migrations of these laboring forces across the Indian Ocean, across the Bay of Bengal arenas. Sunil Amrit, who was on my committee, is a fantastic historian, a MacArthur fellow, writes in his books about this sort of migration. It is this period from 1834 to 1924, which essentially forms the base of the huge number of Indian diasporas we see across the world. 
it is them who form the basis of these Indian diasporas, you know, in Fiji, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, across the Caribbean world. And that is another history which I think bears, you know, a lot of attention, you know, bears a lot of attention, a lot of focus. One book, again, to your listeners, if they would like to, like to read it, it's by Gayatra Bahadur, and it's called Coolie Woman. The term coolie, again, is used for these Indian indentured laborers. And I, it's an incredibly, you know, moving, uh, you know, narrative about her great-great-grandmother going from somewhere in Eastern India to Guyana and how Indian immigrant, Indian diasporic societies have, have made homes in this, in this distant lands. So I thought that might be, you know, one way to gesture towards the future and a good place to stop and also to tell people that, you know, the history of India is not an isolated history. It's a history of the world itself. Oh, there is no doubt about that. You have driven that point home so clearly to me. I certainly, you know, surrender to that concept today. Uh, Just so insightful. Really, we cannot thank you enough. Mo Banerjee, professor and absolutely renowned scholar for joining us today. I will have the links to the books that you mentioned in the podcast notes. And I cannot wait to resume this discussion on our next episode. Thank you so much, Mo, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sonia. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.